everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Oral Max Facts. First of all, Miriam and I want to thank everyone for your continued support and love. We absolutely love making these podcasts because you guys love listening to them. So thank you. We also want to mention that ever since we started our podcast in, what was it, Miriam, 2019? 2018, man. 2018, was brainstorm. 2018? That's when the brainstorming yeah. Well, it seems like it was just yesterday. It seems that there <laughs> has been five or six other podcasts that rolled out in oral surgery. So yes. woohoo to our profession for yes. you know, making that leap and, uh, you know, continuing on. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely staying current with uh with uh what's out there staying and current. what yep, to do. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's so nice knowing that we have colleagues who who do all other uh sort of wonderful uh product and episode that um it's great. It's great to listen to different interviews. It's great to have a podcast on how to open your own practice. There's there's a lot of information that we could make it easier accessible for each other and um uh i'm very happy to know that there are other platforms and other podcasts that are aiming for that that way we all going to be stronger together absolutely all right so without further ado i am sure you guys are dying to hear about today's topic it's actually a very fun topic um sort of a continuation of our last episode on complications of orthodontic surgery so today we are going to hone into one particular topic, which is the avascular necrosis. We left Lafort 1 complications last time somewhere between ophthalmic complications and bleeding. So we're back today with a short episode on vascular compromise. Our goal for today is to talk about the risk factors and preventing alveolar necrosis, review the current evidence on management, and finally discuss the role of HBO in treatment of alveolar necrosis. Alveolar necrosis of maxilla is one of the most dreaded complications of maxillary surgery. The sequela of compromised vasculature include loss of tooth vitality, development of periodontal defects, and tooth loss, uh, or loss of major segment of alveolar bone or the entire maxilla. The surgical risk factors associated with alveolar maxillary necrosis includes segmental osteotomies, vertical posterior impaction, which you typically have to do with your open bite cases, large transverse expansions, and anterior advancement of more than nine millimeter. Other risk factors are smoking, local and systemic impacts such as vascular anomaly or immunocompromise, stretching or pinching of the tissue, which require constant focus during surgery to be delicate and make sure you're not pinching the mucosa. And even the splint, if the splint is pinching the tissue, that itself could be a risk factor. The devil is in the details and the meticulousness sometimes. (laughs) Absolutely. So having said all of this, one article that made a lot of noise, at least at Mount Sinai, um, when Miriam was in uh, residency, was the case study from Mayo Clinic which was titled Microvascular Reconstruction of Total Maxillary Avascular Necrosis as a Complication of Routine Orthodontic Surgery. So let's quickly summarize this. A 20-year-old, otherwise healthy patient went under a routine Lafort 1 osteotomy. 
And 48 hours later, they started having signs of vascular compromises, which included pale lips to be exact. And despite aggressive hyperbaric oxygen treatment immediately, patient developed complete maxillary avascular necrosis and had to undergo surgical debridement of the non-viable maxilla. Osteocutaneous free fibula flap reconstruction, stage endosseous implant reconstruction of the neomaxilla and prosthodontic rehabilitation. And that is why we decided to dig deep here to see how common these complications are and what is the evidence behind its routine management. So for our young dental students and uh, young interns, let's start by reviewing the blood supply to unosteotomized maxilla. The blood supply to unosteotomized maxilla are descending palatine artery, nasopalatine artery, ascending palatine, branchofacial artery, and ascending pharyngeal artery, and the alveolar branches of internal maxillary artery. Really, if you had to guess, where would you expect to see the greatest percentage of decrease in blood flow after the fourth one osteotomy? Um, I don't know. I think my guess would be in dentition, right? Because we are actually making osteotomy right above the blood vessels that follow uh, or blood vessels that supply the teeth. What does the evidence say? Let's see. Meyer and Kavanaugh showed that the greatest percentage of decrease in blood flow to tissues after subapical osteotomies was to the dental pulp. And it's not surprising that the loss of tooth vitality is among the most sensitive indications of early aseptic necrosis. Having said that though, transient loss of tooth vitality, transient loss of tooth vitality is expected after Lafort surgery anyway. Exactly. As we mentioned, advancement more than nine millimeter is a risk factor. But of course, we do sometimes have to do this large advancement because of routine procedures we perform for management of OSA patients. This nine millimeter was by far the most cited number in the publications we found. But I'm really not sure why. So we dig a little bit deeper and found that this number comes from a really good study by Drum and all published in 1979, where they evaluated 12 patients with cleft lip and palate with angiography prior to Lefort 1. So I think the reason Miriam mentioned it's a good study, it's because it sort of helps us understand why some patients have vascular compromise in maxilla after Lefort. In their sample of cleft lip and palate patients, they found 16 instances where descending palatine artery and its branches were found to be free of pathologies. But in eight instances, the artery showed considerable changes, both in distribution and caliber, and it was obliterated in three instances. And of course, keep in mind, this is in cleft lip and palate patients with anatomical variations and compromise from previous surgeries, but it makes you wonder if some of these variations exist in the normal population too. I highly recommend yeah. you go back and look at the study. It was well done and definitely groundbreaking, especially for yeah. its time. Exactly. Very, very good, very clinically relevant study. Mm -hmm. What about the transverse changes? So according to Dr. Cabin, in 1997, palatal expansion greater than, not, greater than 6 to 8 millimeter also increased the risk of soft tissue breakdown. 
we really tried to go back and track the evidence and even found parts of Dr. Cayman and Pigrell book, but we weren't able to put our finger on the exact articles. Poor surgical technique, such as extensive soft tissue degloving of the maxilla, intraoperative hemorrhage, laceration, or perforation to the palatal soft tissue pedicle are also contributing factors, as you may imagine. So as we all know, this is the most dreaded complication. So why don't we focus a little bit on how we can prevent this? Dr. Lanigan et al. published and reviewed 32 cases of aseptic necrosis. Reviewing their article and other similar articles, we found a few recommendations to help you avoid aseptic necrosis of maxilla, although understand that some biological variables are beyond our control. So let's dive into it. First of all, preserve the descending palatine arteries whenever possible. Divide the maxilla into a few segments as possible or try to avoid small segments anteriorly. In some cases, it may be better to compromise and accept a lack of good contact in the second molar region rather than perform a four-piece maxillary osteotomy to get these teeth into occlusion. Perform sagittal segmentation in paramedian sites as the mucosa is thicker and the bone is thinner than the midline. Maintain the integrity of the palatal mucosa with good surgical technique. Avoid compression of the palatal mucosa or gingiva by a palatal splint. That's why you've got to trim those palatal splints and they have to be really, really minimalistic. And if there's a significant transverse expansion, consider, in it, consider to divide it into two procedures. Initially do surgically assisted or orthodontic palatal expansion, then do your Lefort one osteotomy. Have a good preoperative orthodontic separation of teeth in areas of osteotomy cuts to avoid damage to the interdental bone and roots. I think the literature suggests about three millimeters. Use of hand pressure to down fracture the maxilla and avoid disimpaction forceps whenever possible. Their use may slightly injure palatal mucosa and could compromise the blood supply. If unexpected occurrences happen at the time of surgery, it may just be wise to be conservative and either stop the procedure or plan to accomplish less than what was originally intended. Performing the surgery under minimal hypotensive anesthesia and avoid electrocautery for maxillary buccal vestibular incision and have the patient avoid smoking postoperatively. So this last point really is kind of interesting because where we train, we use electrocautery for maxillary buccal vestibular incisions across hospitals and uh, attendings. Don't you agree? You know, that's right. But when I was in Cincinnati, um, you know, Dr. Krishnan's there and he actually never uses electrocautery. He still uses blade to make his incisions. So, you know, it depends, I guess, on institutions and where you train it and who's training you, I suppose. But yeah, you're right. Hundred percent used uh, electrocautery, and thankfully that was never an issue. Yeah, <laughs> you know, because alveolar necrosis is a very rare complication. Thankfully, one of the other articles that we could find was the case series of thousand cases by Dr. Brian Farrell and Dr. Tucker. They only reported two cases with alveolar necrosis. 
And in their article, they suggested using the Vaseline gauze over the area of alveolar necrosis. And this idea of using Vaseline gauze goes back to Dr. Obegeyser, and its main purpose is to use it as a barrier and a protector. Interesting. And what are the results of using Vaseline gauze? Did they find resolution of necrosis or early healing? They didn't specify in their article. They just showed a before and after that did show resolution. So I don't know if it's just... um, Uh, It's more of a wound dressing to give it the most optimal possibility of secondary healing. When it comes to the treatment of aseptic necrosis, the principles goes back to good wound management, good hygiene in the area, and frequent irrigation with saline are among those initiatives. Some patients get hyperbaric oxygen therapy per practitioner's preference and are placed on antibiotics to prevent secondary infection. A surgical debridement may be required to speed up the resolution of necrotic process. Let's look at hyperbaric oxygen. Why HBO? So although advocated and prescribed, its efficacy is not established for alveolar necrosis post-Lafort-1 osteotomy. There is no protocol per se for hyperbaric oxygenation in literature for these wound complications. Hyperbaric oxygen may quicken the delineation of necrotic segments and allow a definitive debridement to be done at an earlier time. However, HBO does not reverse the development of aseptic necrosis once it has started, although it may limit the extent of such necrosis. And that's an important thing to remember. This is not a single clinical trial meta-analysis or randomized clinical trial on this topic yet. There are some vivo studies on this topic, though. Ridi, can you tell, uh, tell our listeners about the one that we found and we liked? Yeah, so this study is a little bit older, but, you know, it's a good study. Dr. Nelson et al. examined the effects of heparin, dextrin-40, dextrin-70, and hyperbaric oxygen to reduce tissue damage to teeth and bone after mandibular osteotomies in rats. Tissue damage was recorded morphologically whereas blood flow was determined by isotope techniques. The hyperbaric oxygen had a beneficial effect on the amount of tissue damage that occurred as compared with untreated animals. It was hoped that perfusion to ischemic mandibular regions via collateral circulation could be improved by reducing blood viscosity, which is a primary factor in blood flow. Although in other experimental studies, IV dextrin had been reported to improve microcirculation, dextrin-40 or dextrin-70 had no preventative effect on tissue damage in this investigation. Heparin administered subcutaneously reduced morphologically determined tissue damage to teeth and bone, but this treatment was complicated by significant hemorrhage from the operative field. Jocks had found in recent experiments that when heparin is given orally, the endothelial cell concentration is from 100 to 1,000 times the plasma concentration. It is therefore possible that if heparin is given orally postoperatively, it could improve the microcirculation without leading to significant bleeding complications. But the possible usefulness in preventing or limiting the extent of aseptic necrosis with the use of agents such as heparin or dextrin 
requires further investigation. So we are by no means recommending that you do this. We're just reviewing <laughs> a study that shows that hyperbaric oxygen may be a little bit more beneficial than these other means. Okay, guys, that's all we got for you on vascular compromises associated with orthognathic surgery. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.